Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the word approval, maybe best defined by its synonyms, acceptance, agreement, consent, assent, blessing, compliance, rubber stamp, endorsement, mandate, license, and validation. We can give approval and receive approval, and very often we seek approval. Here to discuss is entertainment journalist, producer, entrepreneur, and all-around great human, Chris Witherspoon. You know Chris from his time as an entertainment correspondent at Fandango and CNN, and as entertainment editor at NBC's The Grio. What you may not know is that Chris is the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers, the platform that helps you find what to watch next, react to the TV and movies you've watched, and encourages you to share the experience with fellow content lovers. It's Chris's love letter to media correspondence. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Barbara. Thank you for that introduction. I mean, can you give all my introductions in life moving forward? Oh, I'd be honored to. That would be a thrill. I want to dive right in and ask, why did you choose the word approval? Wow. Ooh, okay. Um, some of the work I've been doing the past couple of years is unlearning uh, the importance of approval in my life. I think I went through life, I went through my career constantly seeking approval, uh, being happy to be there, being happy to be in the rooms that I was in, but never really being in the moment the way that I think I can be in the moment and that I'm in the moment now because I no longer look for the approval. I look to make me happy. I look to feel good. And when I feel good, I know I'm going to win. You know, uh, I'm no longer, you know, circling back and saying, how did I do? Did you like that? Um, or, or, or just also, do you like me? Uh, so for me, I'm at a place now where I really feel like I want to I want to give that to people because I spent so many years in this sort of pressure cooker looking every single day from the moment I got dressed. Will they like what I'm wearing? You know, <laughs> uh, looking for approval. Okay, I get all of that. As I joke, I'm a recovering people pleaser. So I understand everything you just said. So first of all, thanks for sharing that, the vulnerability of what you just shared with us. But also, so talk to us, like, when did it click? What was that transition for you? You know, I think there were times like later in my career, and I would say like the past the past three years, I've been in the sweet spot where I'm not looking for approval and I feel really great in the skin that I'm in. I feel very confident and I really love my work. I love doing my, my work. I love every moment of my work, but I can be honest. And this was kind of when I was coming to you, Barbara, for your training. I don't know if folks know that, but I did come to you. You did literally change, I think, the trajectory of my career with a lot of advice you gave me. But I think when I was coming to you, it was in this phase where I was doing a lot of auditions. My agent was sending me out for a lot of opportunities. And there was this thing that I was doing that was kind of like code switching where I come into a room, I'm walking in, I'm fabulous, I'm giving you a look, I'm having a great time, I'm loving the moment. Then the moment that the camera comes on, I begin thinking about the person who's gonna watch this tape, the person who's going to maybe give me the job. And I'm trying to win their approval. And I can be honest, there were some, some segments that I did, some appearances that I did right around 2017, 2018, where I can be honest, they were truly anxiety-inducing in, uh, nightmare scenarios where I, I not only lost me, but I think I lost control of my ability to hide what I'm feeling inside. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And 
I think Oprah says it best. Some of the folks that I really love say it best. At a certain point, if you lose your inauthenticity, if you if you lose your authenticity, if you if, if you become in, inauthentic, if you no longer have integrity, you'll spiral, you'll fall. And that's what I did. I wasn't integrated. Uh, and I went through a long part of my life, not integrated, and it worked. I was on autopilot sometimes, uh, but I think I got to a place where it wasn't working anymore. And I'm so grateful that it didn't work because it led me to where I am now. First of all, you just gave us such an amazing definition of authenticity, which again, too, is kind of a buzzword and hard for sometimes for people to understand. Oh, I love that. So you're out of alignment with your own values. And mm. by the way, you, you and I are in an industry and many industries, I suppose, where that's easy to fall into that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's built around that. So it takes a lot of courage to do and say what you just said, which was incredible. But so now tell us where you are today, because I just think it's incredible and the transition you made. I'm living my best life. No, um, today, today I are. thank you. No, today I, well, one, let me just say the transition was not on my own. I sought out therapy. I thought therapy was something that was for people that were broken, people that were, that had meltdowns, that had breakdown, uh, breakdowns that couldn't function. I went to go see a therapist. And when I went to go uh, do therapy, I was looking for a black gay man because I am a black gay man. And I was like, I don't want to go telling all my stories, all my drama, all my problems to someone who's not like me. That's not what I found. I found a therapist that was available uh, who happened to be a white woman. And I can't tell you how much work we've done together. And the most important thing I can tell people that are on the fence about therapy, it's, it takes you from being good to being great. Um, and for me, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. You can say as, as a woman, you want a woman or a man, you want a man. It's about coming in and doing the work and wanting to get to that next level of your greatness. And that's what I did. That's what I'm doing. That's where I am now on that. Um, and then in my career, I've been able to really step back and look at what do I want to do? What is my intention behind what I'm doing? And how does it kind of serve the bigger vision of who I want to be? And so right now, um, I run a company. I, I launched a startup. It's called Pop Viewers. It's a technology app. You can download it in the Apple App Store right now. Um, it allows people to discover new content to watch, to leave reactions to what they're watching, and to really be able to engage in a one-of-a-kind community around content. And it's kind of a 180 to what I've been doing, which is an entertainment journalist from many, many years going on different shows. But I still get to do that now, but I go on as the founder and CEO of Pop Viewers. So you might see me on the Today Show. I was on the Wendy Williams Show a lot. Uh, I'll be doing the Sherry Shepard show this fall. It's beautiful. It's really my love letter to the viewers, to the consumers that engage around this content and really, I think, struggle most nights to figure out what to watch. Wait, okay, I'm going to stop because first of all, I love the app. If I heard you correctly, you went from seeking external approval to now kind of that coming home to oneself, it's your own approval. Yeah. Right. And so now I see why timing wise is when you start to do that work and somebody wants to give me the best definition or a really good definition of therapy, it helps you understand how you tick. Mm. This is a huge leap. And I think it's exciting for anyone listening, but can you maybe break down your own process or where you got to that thing? It's like, I have this idea and then you actually yeah. get to the, like, I'm going to pull the trigger. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go from talking about it to doing it, which Listen, is massive. I got you. I got you. So it's interesting bringing it full circle to the therapy of it all. In 2018, I was, I, 
I had a contract that wasn't renewed. Let's put it at that. I had a contract that wasn't renewed. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I was ready to keep going with this contract, but it's really great that it didn't because it caused me to pause and look inward, which was beginning therapy. Um, but the reality is before this contract ended, I began noticing a problem in Hollywood. Um, I was working for Fandango, uh, who also owns Rotten Tomatoes. I was getting to go to a lot of screenings of movies, uh, TV shows, events for films and TV shows. And I was noticing that a lot of the same critics, the same crowd of people get invited to screen films and TV shows very early on, the major publications. And the reality is the viewers are really an afterthought so often. They, the studios spend a lot of time and a lot of months courting the press, courting the media, courting critics. But then whatever happens with viewers kind of happens once it's released or when it hits theaters. And I just began thinking to myself, this can't be right because as a journalist, as someone who's covering the entertainment, and going on different shows, talking about what's happening on social media and how there's these conversations happening around shows on social media that are really making them pop. I begin to realize, how can I, how can I give viewers a seat at the table and make their sentiment just as important, just as necessary, and I would almost say like timely as critics, as critics reviews. And how can we have a score or some sort of, of metric around the sentiment that can be of value to the content creators, to the studios, that I know as a, as a talent, I'm getting to talk to the, the publicists, the folks in marketing at Sony, at Universal, at Netflix, et cetera. And I know that they have a really hard time connecting to viewers. They know how to get to journalists and to insiders in the industry, but it's like, they oftentimes don't have the tools and the abilities to just like find ways to pull audiences and to really get a gauge on what the life history of what they've watched has been. And that's what we do. But to answer your question, how did I do it? Uh, in 2018, I went to a really good friend of mine, Joy Reed. Uh, she hosts the readout on MSNBC. I used to work for her many, many years ago at the Grio, and she's who got me on TV. One day she couldn't do an MSNBC appearance and she called me and was like, Chris, you're doing it. And I was like, I'm not ready. And I began doing it. She, I went and sat with her and told her about this idea in this moment where I was essentially unemployed and really going through that feeling of just like rejection. But also I felt this tinge of inspiration. There was a new feeling because it felt like, you know, when you're a bird or we're not birds, but when you <laughs> see birds, little baby birds and they have wings and they're so excited and you begin seeing them at that phase where they're getting ready to take flight. I kind of felt like that. I knew I had these wings and I knew I had this passion for this idea. I kind of just needed some folks around me that I really admired to say to me, Chris, I think you're on something, go for this, like focus on this. So I sat down with Joy. We had a little kiki one day over after we taped the podcast she was doing. And I think I got like three minutes into the idea and Joy was like, I'm stopping you right there. You have to do this. I am writing you your first check. <laughs> I'm gonna invest in your company. And I'm gonna tell you, do not worry about not knowing all that you think you need to know to be a CEO of a tech company, you know a problem that needs to be solved. Now you go out and you find a team of folks to help you bring this vision to life that might be able to oversee certain facets. Literally in her little office, she probably told me, this is what Harvard will do for y'all folks. She went to Harvard. She probably told me about four minutes how to create the MVP of this company, how to go out and raise funds and go to angel investors and get folks to write you small checks and give them small pieces of equity and then how to have an MVP product. 
uh, and I went out and I did that. I, I, I listened to my friend, but I also began listening to a lot of podcasts. So if I am on a podcast right now, uh, but how I built this uh, from Guy Raz at MSNBC uh, and the stories of failure, I began to realize that every single person that innovated, every single person that created anything that I loved, that any app on my phone, any product that I use in my daily life, they failed many, many, many times before it got to being something that they could build a revenue stream around and grow. So I said, I know all about failure. I grew up in a small town with a family that was evicted three times. You know, I've always lived on a week and a prayer. My family went through a lot as a kid. So I'm like, oh, I'm used to failure. I can do this, okay? <laughs> I eat failure for breakfast. Let's go out and try to figure out how to make this company work. And I did, and we out here now. I don't know if you remember, but we had drinks somewhere yes. like at San Ambrose or someplace. And, I, and the reason I want to bring this up is I saw the shift in you. Thank you. When you started telling me about this idea and I was like, wow, you are like so in it. And, but I, I, it was an energetic shift where it's like, I felt the confidence, the passion. I get it. Like I, I witnessed so good for you. And now I'm also really getting the shift in your own approval matrix because mm -hmm. it became an internal ma approval matrix. Yeah, right. In yeah. the, what matters to me, what's making me happy at the end of every day, because you're going into this thing, right. Where, you know, at the end of the day, long-term failure is not an option, but failure's a daily encounter yeah. in yeah. this launch process, but yeah. somehow that's working on your own approval matrix. I like how you're saying that work on my own approval matrix. Um, but also just be the example in a room where I don't see examples of me oftentimes, you know, examples of my idea, examples of me. And it's so funny. Uh, I spoke to um, a young group of women recently, the Emma Bowen Foundation, uh, a bunch of beautiful, beautiful, talented young women and, and some men who are scholars right now with their foundation. And I gave them a story. I'll tell you too. When I was in high school, I'll never forget my family. It was 1999. I was getting ready to go to college. I went to college in 2000, but it was when I first got accepted to Ohio University, which if you're from my town, Warren, Ohio, which is like in the middle of the Steel Valley, most folks go, most folks then went from high school to GM, which was the major plant in our town. My family uh, had been evicted from our home three different times. This summer, we were living, uh, we were houseless, living in home, in the, in the home of a couple different relatives in their basement. Uh, and we had just lost all of our belongings because my dad didn't pay the storage on the U-Haul facility. He suffered from mental condition and he just didn't pay for the, the stuff. So lost all of our things. And I was at church uh, and the pastor was so excited because I had just been accepted to Ohio University. And this woman that I never really talked to, she was a church mother. In the black church, we call them church mother. So the church mother, her name was Sister Hardin. She came up to me, she gave me a hug. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And she uh, whispered in my ear, when you go to, uh, to college, when you go to that Ohio University, if you don't see the example, be the example. That's all she said. And she gave me a kiss. And, I, and you know, a lot of people told me a lot of different things in my, in my life at that, time, at that point, but I, nothing ever stuck with me. But I never with that. I was like, well, I like how that sounds. I really like how that sounds. I want to do that. And I think what happened was, Barbara, I did it in college. I got to New York. And I think when I was interning and when I was like, I, I worked for Jeff Zucker as his personal assistant when he was the CEO of NBC Universal for two years, I did a lot behind the scenes and I was able to be confident and be that example. I think it was when the cameras came on, I suddenly began to think about approval in a really big, big, big way. So it was wonderful for me 
to be able to realize that my road is talent. And I had a lot of great hits and a lot of great moments. I interviewed Oprah three times. Um, um, but I think that that road led me to having a moment where I hit a brick wall along the lines of seeking approval to a point that it became toxic. And it began to kind of eat at me in so many different ways. It led me to looking inward and to realizing what are your passions, Chris? What do you get excited about in the morning for you, before you got out of bed and when you go to bed at night? And how can you find, find a way to make a living doing this? And that was how I got to where I am, you know, and that approval matrix inward. I'm going to use that now, Barbara. That's mine now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you passionate about? You know, I think I'm passionate about continuing to be an example. I'm passionate about telling people my failures. I think that that's just so important. So many people that are successful that inspired me and that inspired me on my journey have been very honest about their failures. And I'm passionate about not just telling you about my failures when I'm successful, you know, because I'm definitely not where I know we're going to be and where I want to be as a CEO, as a founder, as a talent, because I will host a show one day. Um, but I really, I'm, I'm passionate about peeling back the layers to who I am, because I realize I have climbed up a mountain. I haven't gotten to the top yet, but there are a lot of young people who are in college, who are getting out of college, who look up to folks like me. And it, it kind of takes my breath away when I, when I learn that, when I hear that. Uh, but I want to do my best to, you know, really let them in on how I got to where I am and all the times that I fell down and I bruised my knees and I hit my head and I got back up again. What's the best part of being a tech founder and what's the hardest part of being a tech founder right now? Ooh, I think the best part of being a tech founder is when someone that I don't even know finds a way to connect with me on Twitter or Instagram, because you can't really DM me yet on pop viewers, but tells me that they found their favorite show um, on our platform. Uh, they found their, their latest binge on pop viewers. Uh, one of the best parts is when I see um, young people that are in college I'm, I don't know, I'm getting a little steamy, I'm a little misty here. Um, young people that are in college, that are of color, uh, message me on LinkedIn and tell me they read a piece about me, they heard a podcast where I spoke or something, and they never thought that people like me could be founders and I've inspired them to create, you know, to, to, to find a way to build a business and to be an entrepreneur. And I know it sounds crazy, someone in college message, messaging you and saying that, a young kid who's going to an HBCU, but Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook in college. So I tell them to go out, to be great, to climb that mountain and to soar and to jump, most importantly to jump. So that's one of the best parts of my day. The hard part is still, it's not so much the approval, it's continuing to have the mindset that every no is the next. That's the hardest part, because I do get told no a lot. When you're a founder, when you've launched something, when you're trying to raise money, when you're trying to land big partnerships, and we've landed a couple already, which are great, and we will have more in the future, but you have to regularly be okay with hearing no. And I think that having worked in the roles that I had in the past, where I worked for NBC Universal, NBC News, CNN, uh, like I said, working for Jeff Zucker, and when I go to reach out for something or I ask for something, normally there's a budget to back me up and the, you know, there's always a yes when there's a budget to back you up or there's a big name brand behind me and there's a yes because, oh my God, Fandango, yes, we want to have Jordan Peele sit down with you for a Fandango interview. But the hardest part is, is 
hearing the, hearing no, but taking a moment, pushing myself away from my keyboard um, and allowing myself to be, to, to, to channel gratitude for that moment and to recognize that I got through to them, the door is open now because most times it's a no, not right now or no keep us posted, but the no still stings. Um, but again, I have to continue to tell myself every no is the next because that's how my life's been. You know, the receipts are there. I have to remind myself to go look at them. So, wow. One of the things I'm hearing is, is the um, every day not taking it personally, which is hard because yeah. so hearing no is hard anyway, but it's hard to hear no when it's your baby. Like you created this, right? So it feels personal, but you can't make it personal. Amazing. And that you're deciding in real time to shift your energy is also incredible. Can I tell you who told me that and, and, and who I didn't receive it when she told me this, but I received it later on, like 2020, um, Oprah. I, I'll never forget, I was interviewing Oprah for my, probably my, my third time interviewing her for a, a special she was doing on OWN. It was called A Belief. It was all about what you believe. And at this point, I had gone viral interviewing Oprah twice already, once for the butler and once for her film Selma. So I'm like, oh God, the pressure's on. I need Oprah on this red carpet to say something to me that nobody else has heard yet so I can keep these jobs and keep these checks coming in as talent. And so my question for her was going to be about failure. Because I was like, I want to get Oprah to like open up about something really bad that happened to her that she's never told before because I think she likes me. So I'm on the red carpet and she comes over to me and looks like a billion dollars because she deserves to. Uh, and I get nervous immediately. But my question for her was, what moment in failure impact most greatly impacted her belief system because we're at a special for her show believe and what do you believe in um and she oprah has well she did but she normally wears her hair really big hair so she takes you know her fingers that have diamonds on them and her necklace and she pulls her hair back and i'm holding the microphone in her face and she was like well chris and oprah always says your name in the interview it doesn't matter who you are she asks you for your name and she says it a few times while she's talking to you which always makes you want to uh, pass out so she says well chris you know i don't believe in failure and i'm like oh god she'll believe in failure she's like i don't believe in failure chris i spoke to the wellesley college um graduates in 1993, I think it's 1993. And um, during that speech, I told these young women that there's no such thing as failure. There's no such thing as failure or rejection or you know, uh, a no being the end of you. There's only life picking you up and pointing you in the direction of where you're meant to go, where your destiny wants you to be. And she talked about OWN, her network, where I was there interviewing her, it was two years in. And she said, um, you know, Chris, when I launched OWN, mention my name again, when I launched OWN um, two years ago, you probably remember, they wrote some really bad things about me for the first time in my career. It was what, it was what one could perceive as failure. I thought I had failed. I cried. I didn't leave my room, my, my, my home for hours on end, you know, really feeling like I had left this show where I was successful for more than two decades. I had, you know, been the first to do so many great things. And here I am the first black woman to launch her own network and I am a failure. But she said, what I did in that very moment is I went in my, in my whole thing around that is to find stillness, she said, is to just be, go be still. So she went on her beautiful estate and sat under this old tree. And she said, I sat there, I sat there until I was at peace with 
this moment of failure. And so I was at peace with the fact that our ratings had tanked, all the shows that we had, that we had put all this money into, Rosie O'Donnell's show, everyone and their mama had a show. They all were failures. Uh, until I was settled in that moment, then the, then the answer came to me. And the answer was to call my friend Tyler Perry. And I called Tyler Perry and I told him that everything we have right now isn't working. Can you, this is Oprah being vulnerable and putting her ego in the back seat. Can you come help me? One of the bravest words we can say is H-E-L-P, help. Can you come help me? And Tyler did. Tyler came. He brought several scripted projects. He brought his massively dedicated audience to OWN. And OWN made a major pivot towards making content that really celebrated the stories of Black women. A year later, Ava DuVernay came. She brought uh, Queen Sugar, which was a juggernaut for ratings. But I walked away from that red carpet a little bit disappointed because that's not going to go viral. <laughs> you know, everyone already kind of knows that story because the ratings are, 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 are up. You know, everything that she said wouldn't go viral. But it's so funny. In 2018, I went back and I found that tape and I watched that tape because at that moment in my career, I was where Oprah was in terms of just like as talent, I kind of had bottomed out and I needed to go find a tree to sit under and to find the answer of what my next move should be. And it came to me, just like she said, it came to me. And so now when I get an email that says no, when I spend weeks or months pining for a partnership or an opportunity, and I've done everything I can, I just get really still. And I recognize that this is bigger than me. And the reality is that door literally might get closed in my face, but there's likely gonna point me in a different direction of a door that's open and waiting for me. Now I just want to sit in the stillness with that amazing story. Yeah, let's be still. I'm down. Let's be still. <laughs> Wait, and then you know what else is running through my head? Because I've you've done it for me privately. I don't know if you would do it now. Is Oprah saying your name? Not Chris oh. on the red carpet when she came bellowing down the hallway. Okay, okay. I'll tell you the whole story. So you guys, in 2013, I interviewed Oprah for the movie The Butler. I'm pretty sure 2013. Uh, but just look up when The Butler came out. That's when I interviewed her. And by the way, I did not know I was going to interview her. No one, the, the team at the studio, and I believe it was the Weinstein Company, <laughs> um, the studio invited me to come interview everyone else but Oprah. That's what I was told the day before. So when I get there, I didn't have questions ready for Oprah. But I watched the movie the night before, I loved it. And I'm like, get me in that room, I will figure the rest out. This woman has raised me through the TV. And by the way, I had never met Oprah in person, never, 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 never. So one, one other important part of the story, at this time I was making, I can't even remember, but it was not much money at all. I was always barely making my rent and not paying it on time most, most months, a very New York journalist situation. I had a big old hole about my, my shoes. I'll never forget that. So I'm wearing these black loafers because I wanted to dress nice for Oprah. And I wore a, a jacket, I wore a tie, I wore these nice jeans that kind of was like part of the look. And I walk into the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And by the time I got to the floor where I'm going to interview Oprah in this room, I'm like, oh, this carpet's so nice and plush because my loafers, I can feel it. I have a big old hole down on my feet. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling the carpet on my feet while I'm walking around. Oh my God, what nice carpet they have here at the Waldorf. <laughs> um, and so I go to walk into Oprah's room and that's the, the first time she called my names when I walked into her room, which 
really took me off guard because, you know, if you, if you guys listen to Oprah uh, or watched her show, she has a way of saying a guest's name. <laughs> and she gave me the Chris Weatherspoon. And I'm like, uh, she's not gonna be, even though I, I'm the only person with that name, I still, it still didn't register. So I'm like, Chris, keep it together. You have to do a five minute interview or a four minute interview with her, sit down. So I sit down and it's literally like, if you can if, if, if you can think of a movie, like a mythical Grecian kind of movie where there's like a heart playing and there's someone feeding someone grapes, that's the energy of the room. Oprah's not getting fed grapes, but you couldn't tell me there wasn't no heart playing, <laughs> some cherubs sitting around. The lighting, the lighting got better in that room. Just everything happened. So it's almost like sitting down with, I don't know, your Lord and Savior, if you believe in that sort of thing. So I sit down. And we do the interview. It's a great interview. Lee Daniels bursts in. I think after like my third question, he didn't realize Oprah was done with her break and was back on. And so she's like, oh, come in, Lee. Come in, Lee. This is Chris. Chris Witherspoon. And, and Lee says hi. And he's saying something to her. So and they're joking around. And Oprah's like, um, Chris, I'm giving you more time just so you know. Because Lee, Lee interrupted you. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we talked about her legacy, so many other things. The interview's over. I get up and I leave. I go and I interview Jesse Williams. I go and interview uh, Lenny Kravitz, who's in the film. I interview Lee Daniels. And I'm waiting out in the hallway for my very last interview. And I'm sitting next to my friend. And there's a few other journalists, probably like 10 of us in the hallway still waiting for other interviews. But I'm back nearby Oprah's room. And I went by the room and did not look in her room. Because once you meet you know, whomever is like your hero, you keep it moving. You do not want to ever look at them again because it was just too much for you to take in. So, and I, and she gave me a picture and everything. I took a picture with her. I was like, oh, I'm done. I'm good for life. I don't got to ever see you again. And so I looked to see what the time was for the other room. And Oprah says it again, Chris Witherspoon. Is that Chris out there? And I'm like, she didn't call my name. She didn't just say my name. I'm going to go sit down because that didn't just happen. So I go and I sit down because again, you don't want to be that person who's hovering outside Oprah's room or trying to go back in after she gave you a great eight minute interview. And also I knew something she had said was gonna go viral. So I'm like, oh, I got a good tape too. Let me just sit down. So I sit down and about three minutes later, I hear my name again and it's Oprah, but I didn't look up. I'm looking down at her feet because I just didn't want to believe it's her. And I'm also in this moment having really an out-of-body experience because there's a hallway full of journalists and she's standing in front of me. So I'm looking at her feet. She's wearing these open-toe wedges. So I'm looking at her toes and they're open-toe, like, I guess like wicker basket. I don't know that kind of fabric, but like that kind of wickery kind of open-toe wedge situation. And so I'm looking at her feet. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is definitely, this is Oprah. This is Oprah. This has to look up, Chris. Just look up. So I look up and I'm like, oh, hey, Oprah. <laughs> um, and she's like, Chris, let me tell you, I did... 87 interviews today. I am exhausted. And I'm like, Oprah, let me just, you know, again, I, I, I forgot it was Oprah in this moment. I just become normal. I'm like, Oprah, can I just say to you, I talked to a few of my friends who are journalists and every single person that you spoke to, that you gave an interview to, you gave us such great answers. You answered every single question. You didn't dodge anything. You were just so present for us. And she was like, Chris, let me tell you something. She said, and by the way, I'm still sitting down. I didn't want to stand up yet. I'm like, Chris, just sit and let her leave. So, cause I'm still like, I'm, I'm sweating Barbara in places I never knew I could sweat at this point. There was sweat dripping down my legs, ankles, toes, my fingers, my palms are sweating. So I'm like, can this please, can she just leave so I don't pass out? So she's like, let me take something, Chris. She says, um, when I was 
around where you are right now in your career, I was working for a local station and they sent me out to interview uh, Robin Williams for his show, Mork and Mindy and Priscilla Presley, uh, who was doing a guest appearance on the show. And she says, I get there, Elvis had just died. And I get there all prepared to ask Priscilla a question about Elvis. That's what my station manager sent me there to do. Not to talk about the show at all, <laughs> not, not at all. And she said, I get there and someone comes into the room and they tell me you can ask them anything at all, but not about Elvis. No question about Elvis, we will stop the cameras. And I'm like, so what did you ask, Oprah? She's like, oh, some bull crap. I don't remember. Um, but she's like, I made it a point after that interview. I said, if I ever get my own show, and she's like, listen to me now, Chris. And I was like, okay, I'm listening. If I ever get my own show, I made it a point that I would never let a publicist, a manager, an agent, anyone tell me or my team that I can't interview that person and ask whatever I want to ask. No questions off limits. So I, so immediately I jump in and I begin thinking about all the memorable Oprah interviews. So I'm like, Oprah, even with Michael Jackson, they didn't tell you, you couldn't ask me anything. She's like, nope. I said, how about Beyonce? Because she just interviewed Beyonce last year. She's like, Chris, I'm, I'm telling you right now, if they, if they tell me I can't ask a question, I say, we're not doing the interview. You can take a car. We paid for your hotel. You can go home. And she was like, because the reality is if they're on my show, they can always say, I don't feel comfortable answering that question or I'm not going to answer that question, but I need my audience to know that I did my job. And I also need to stand in my truth and my authenticity and not feel like I'm trying to, she didn't say this part, but she was like, not feel like I'm not in the fullness of who I am. But in my mind, not trying to get the approval of the publicists, of the managers, of, of whomever. So, you know, she, she said that to me. And at a certain point, she said, one day, if you get your own show, remember that. That's all she said. If you get your own show. And I was like, okay, she said your own show to me. And that means we not only had a moment, but Oprah is manifesting me one day having a talk show. <laughs> and Barbara, she walked away. She didn't say, here's my number, let's have lunch. She didn't say anything. She, just, she suddenly just walked away and three people were in front of her. And I think about a dozen were behind her and they all followed off to her SUV. <laughs> and I began breathing again naturally, but it brings me back to the approval piece, Barbara. You know, Oprah kind of said that like she went in there and did an interview that was subpar because she was trying to, and she was trying to play the game and earn the approval of these publicists, be able to have reputation that says you're easy to work with. But the reality is everyone probably didn't want to hear Oprah ask Priscilla Presley about Elvis. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a huge story. It was a national story. And I think that I'm so grateful she didn't play the game. Because again, she raised me through the TV during some of our toughest times as, you know, as a family, because Oprah would sit down with the stars who were really our outlet. They were the folks that pulled us out. So there was nothing, nothing could come close to an Oprah interview. And it's because she was honest, she was integrated, and she wasn't looking for nobody's approval. I see this through line between Oprah and your church mother. Oh, yes. Yes. I think you are right. If you, if, if you can't see the example, be the example. And that's what I believe, you know, she might not have had a church mother come up to her and tell her that, but she's been that. She's mm. truly been that. Mm, 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 mm. Oh, I love. Okay. That was amazing. I we just, we've been to church. We've had a masterclass. That's incredible. <laughs> 
Tell everyone where we can find you. Plus also how do we, you know, log on and download our pop viewers. Yeah, but I do want to give you your flowers on your podcast. And I probably have told you this before, but I said it earlier. One of the greatest things you did was really, and you didn't really say it this way, but you really, before I was ready, planted the seeds as talent to make sure I looked inward before that camera comes on. One thing you said to me, and I'm going to botch this, um, but you said to me, the curtains have to match the drapes or something like that. Is that how you said it? Um, yes, probably. Yeah. You said that. And you also gave me a list of words and you said, I want you to circle the, the, this list of words that really define who you are. And I took that list home and I put it in a dresser drawer and I never, ever pulled it out until the great moment where I was at that crossroads during this work of looking. And I was like, oh, this is this dusty old thing Barbara gave me like five years ago. And the reality why I didn't fill it out when you gave it to me, Barbara, because I didn't know who I was. I knew who I wanted to be. I knew who the talent like Don Lemon and all these folks that I admired when I was working at CNN, I knew who they were. So I could have gone and circled those words, but you said, who are you, Chris? Who are you? In my mind, you were saying, who are you when the camera's off? And I couldn't really figure out how to answer that question as talent. And the best thing I did was look inward and really begin to be the same person I am off camera as I am on camera and I had the best time and I really, I get continually booked and get the best feedback because people really get a sense of who I am. The curtains match the drapes, that's mm -hmm. it. You can't separate your being from your doing. Many of Ooh, us try, but you cannot. Okay, I'm borrowing that one. I'm borrowing that one. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, but the Thank of, you. Ah, uh, no, I, I, it means the world to me. And I tell anyone that ever asked me about being talent, if, they are, if they're struggling and figuring out who they need to be, who they need to be to feel comfortable on camera. I always say to be you, but I say there's a woman in Brooklyn who I went to, if you want to go, <laughs> that really set me on that, um, on that journey. But to answer your other question, you, that's beautiful. You, can, you guys can download Pop Viewers available in the Apple App Store. You can follow us on Instagram at Pop Viewers, our Facebook's at Pop Viewers, and you can follow me on Instagram at Witherspoon, my last name, Witherspoon C, also on Twitter. Mm, so excited. I'm, I'm thrilled to start talking about my favorite shows with you on Pop Viewers. Yes, please, please, please. please. We, we love it. And, and some exciting stuff coming in the fall. Oh, well, then we'll oh. have to have you come back. Sign me up. <laughs> this is fantastic. And I want to thank you for listening to Cameron Ready and Able. If you're interested in media coaching for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off. And as always, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Thank you.